0: This is Celia Duplessis from Gaia Kosovo, and you are listening to the 8th episode of our Reflection podcast series. Our guest, Mariana toma is an historian and a transitional justice practitioner. She is the manager of the Mapping and Curating Emergent Human Rights Defender Protection Strategies Project at the Center for Cultural Decontamination. She has worked on numerous transitional justice initiatives, regionally and internationally since 2002. She was the member and coordinator of the expert group for drafting the mandate for the Regional Commission for Establishment of Facts About War Crimes in the former Yugoslavia between 1991 and 2001, and also worked in the International Center for Transitional Justice in Cape Town, South Africa. Today, Mariana will discuss about forgetting and forgiving in the Balkans. Mariana, thank you for joining our Reflection podcast series and we are very happy to have you today to discuss about forgetting and forgiving in the Balkan and this is a topic that has been quite important for Gaia uh, because we, we started also our peace building program in Mitrovica. To start with this topic, I wanted to ask you what are the lessons learned from the turbulent past in the Balkan? What What does history teach us about what
1: happened? Uh, yes, I, I was thinking a lot about that question and uh, being a historian, trying to find out uh, what lessons my generation, for example, learned from the from the history, and I think one of the things that comes to my mind, uh, especially in reflection to my work on dealing with the past and trying to address the issues from the past, uh, primarily in the society where I live in, in in Serbia, but also in connection to the region, and uh, looking at my friends and colleagues in all of the neighboring countries dealing with these issues. I would say that one of the most important lessons that we have learned from history is that, uh, first of all, if the unresolved issues from the past remain unresolved, then the history will repeat. Mm -hmm. So looking at my work in transitional justice and uh, researching and documenting war crimes, i think that was one of the most valuable lessons primarily in this region where where violence especially among ethnic groups was uh, sometimes uh, put under the carpet on behalf of some you know future or better future or common life i think that these kind of things especially something that happened after the second world war for example in relation to the to the events that happened during the second world war which were put under the carpet in the name mm-hmm. of the brotherhood and unity in the in the in the socialist yugoslavia that kind of thing actually proven to us that history can repeat. And that is what happened in the in the beginning of 1990s, because things from the past went unresolved for many generations. And this kind of unofficial memory uh, was nurtured in our societies and later exploited by nationalists who uh, saw it as an advantage in order to mobilize larger groups of peoples uh, in order to further their nationalistic agenda. And that is, for example, one of the main reasons that I think led to the wars and and atrocities during Mm. the 1990s in the Balkans. Another thing that I think is important to mention, and that's something that sometimes we kind of forget about this, and that is that this perception that came... I think very wrongly that you know in the Balkans we suffer from ethnic hatred somehow mm-hmm. and I think that if you look deeper into the history of our region if you look at deeper into the history of our communities you would find more examples of solidarity of living together in peace of cooperating of um, uh, you know neighbors and different religions and different ethnicities live for centuries in peace And and the periods of peace and cooperation and solidarity and good neighborly relations were much longer than these periods of conflict and wars. And for me, one of the main examples I always like to use is the the example of Prizren, the -hmm. city where many uh, different religions were living next to each other, or Sarajevo, again, Mm. where many religions live next to each other, and then ethnicities. And they lived in peace, there were lots of mixing, there were lots of cooperation, there were lots of friendships that were built, even, you know, family connections were made, even mixed marriages were made. And I think um, that sometimes, especially in the light of the last 20 or 30 years of you know, conflict and dealing with the legacy of conflict and dealing with the consequences mm-hmm. of conflict, we sometimes forget about this part of our common past. And I think that's something that we should start exploring more and more in the, in the future, these periods of cooperation and solidarity and good relations, in order to learn from these examples mm-hmm. how we can rebuild our um, relationships again.
0: It makes me think, also how I learned the story of the Balkans actually as a young French student you know and they always say it's hatred between all the ethnicities and I was raised with this idea which I think as you said is not so true so it's also very interesting to fight this I think and learn about the the good example and also so you mentioned the the memory this memory that That was put under the carpet and didn't allow to express what happened. How to transform events that are present in the collective memory into objects from the past? Because now we see that all, like not all, but most of the Balkan countries are like struggling with traumas and what happened. And how how do you transform this collective memory to something from the past, an object of history?
1: i think it is a very uh, important question and something that we need to discuss not only uh, among each other among mm-hmm. different societies but also within our own societies yeah, because the trauma is present the uh, you know victims are still alive and there are so many families still looking for their loved ones and searching for their bodies Mm -hmm. and searching in order to to give them a proper burial. For example, for me, that question is the most important question of, you know, dealing with the past. Mm -hmm. And um, that is something that uh, we should look at when we think about how to transform this violent past into or this collective memory into something that we can live in history, and I think that without a proper process of dealing with those things in an, in a, in a most honest and transparent manner, you know, we will not be able to transform this collective memory. And to heal from the trauma that our societies are still battling with, and I, I, I do believe, and I look always at the other other examples, and I try to look at the experience of other countries trying to find ways how they dealt with with this. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a, that is possible. You know, there are examples in the world where societies went through similar experiences where they dealt with the same or similar difficulties and difficult emotions toward their neighbors or toward, you know, groups that were living in the same country. That made me believe that without the process of dealing with the past that would encompass, you know, many different strategies, revealing the truth, establishing the truth about what happened, establishing the facts about what happened, trying to resolve the issue of missing persons as much as possible. You know, mm-hmm. we we have to be realistic And I know that many would not agree with me that when I say but that is a reality that not all of the missing persons would be found, but we have to do everything possible to look for all of them. We have to make significant steps in order to give some kind of closure to families of the missing persons. There are ways that are going into the, the direction of accountability. If you want to transform this kind of a traumatic feeling of a society, you have to work on establishing the accountability for the crimes. Healing cannot start if the victims are feeling neglected or... If the victims are feeling ignored because they see the perpetrators or those who committed the crimes still living freely and respected in their, in their communities, in their societies. And I think that is, that is why, for example, prosecutions and establishing the accountability for these events is important. That is also a way how to remove the question of collective guilt, mm-hmm. of collective accountability, because As a society, if you are ready to investigate and punish the responsible for the crimes, you are saying, you're showing that your society has changed from that period when these crimes were committed. I think it is very important if you really want to, to have a process of healing, if you want to have a process of reconciliation, I think it is crucial to show that victims are respected uh, Mm -hmm. and acknowledged not only by saying oh you know we respect the victims we respect their pain no you have to show with concrete steps how you do it how you respect them and that means that victims should get just reparations for for what they have suffered their suffering has to be acknowledged not only by activists Um, who have the awareness about what happened. But that kind of acknowledgement has to come from the state institutions, from the state level, state officials. Official acknowledgement is crucial to show that victims are respected and that their dignity is restored on a state level in a way and that you know, you, you kind of, as a society, you commit yourself by doing that, that you will not allow that this kind of thing happen again, that these kind of atrocities are possible to be repeated. And finally, you need to, uh, of course, address the issue of institutional accountability. You have mm-hmm. to change, you have to reform the institutions which have participated in the atrocities. And by doing that, you are not only, you know, strengthening the democracy in your society, you're not only sending the message to victims that, you know, atrocities will not happen again, but you are kind of sending the message to new generations which are coming that uh, only by having accountable institutions and open and democratic institutions, you guarantee to them that they will live in a peaceful uh, society. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think precondition for reconciliation and then we can talk about you know these kind of events as as they are that they belong in the past mm. it doesn't mean that we should stop talking about these events because if, if you look at the example of Germany or some other societies that are still dealing with the legacy of conflict that happened 70 years ago or 50 years ago they are still talking about this this is still part of their public mm. discourse but the state institutions have shown very clearly that they will not allow these kind of atrocities to happen again.
0: But you mentioned the, the prosecution and the accountability of the institution, and recently in Kosovo, some. Politicians and leaders had to go in front of a commission. And can you tell us a bit more about the prosecution of leaders of Balkan countries and how it affects the process mm-hmm. of transitional justice? What does it change? And what is the importance of sh- such acts?
1: Yes, and, uh, you know, I have been working for a very long time on on these issues. I think for the almost 20 years, I've been working on uh, in different organizations as a, as a form of support to... Mm-hmm war crimes prosecutions, be it at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, Mm or domestic institutions with the task to prosecute people accused for for war crimes. Mm -hmm. And I think it is crucial. I think it is extremely important to have that kind of accountability on the highest level. Because what we have had here in the region was that majority of the persons who were prosecuted, like when I look at all all of the countries, Croatia, Bosnia, and Herzegovina, Serbia, uh, Kosovo uh, was that usually what you had was that people from lower level were prosecuted and i think that by prosecuting high positioned members of either armed groups or armed forces or politicians uh, like in the case of serbia i think prosecution of slobodan milosevic was crucial and the one of the and the key moment for serbia unfortunately that trial was not finished with the judgment as all of us expected and and wanted and worked on however i think by You know, the fact that you had a president of the country who was prosecuted for war crimes in in Bosnia and Herzegovina, Kosovo and Croatia was sending a very important message to the Serbian society that the, the politics that this man led and his associates, that politics that ruled the Serbia in the 1990s was wrong. Another thing why I think it's important to have high positioned uh, leaders to be prosecuted, it shows that no one is above the law. And I think that is the crucial question for establishing the rule of law, you know, especially in a post-conflict society. Another thing is that it that these kind of proceedings are helping us as a society to deal with one of the most important problems that all of the countries going through similar experiences, and I, I completely say this responsibly, all of the countries go through the same problem, and that is the problem of impunity. What we have and what countries around the world had was that impunity was always somehow uh, reserved for the you know, leaders, uh, politicians, or leaders, or generals. What is important is that they face the accountability. And that kind of message is saying to someone else who might try to do, to do the same in some other society, or even in the future in our own society, that these kind of crimes, this kind of politics will not go unpunished. I think we have seen before the ICTY, before the International Criminal Tribunal mm-hmm. for Reform of Yugoslavia, uh, that when Especially, for example, in the case of Bosnia and Herzegovina and in the case of Kosovo, I think those are the most important judgments that we have had. You know, the case of Srebrenica, where majority Mm -hmm. of Bosnian Serb army and political leaders were prosecuted and punished for genocide in Srebrenica is the basis for our societies that we should, you know, build our future relations upon. I think it shows that, you know, at some point, there was some kind of association to commit Mm -hmm. crime and to commit this kind of of atrocities. I also think that uh, the the judgment in the case of uh, six Serbian political and military and police leaders was also crucial for Serbia. Unfortunately, what what I see as a problem is that, you know, facts that were established in these cases about the crimes have not been communicated enough with the communities, Mm -hmm. on the ground so people do not know much about these cases but you know i think what we can find in a in a in a shinovich judgment for example that is the most important memorial to the armed conflict in kosovo to the war in kosovo where we Mm -hmm. see how Serbian army and police went through villages, went through cities, went through, uh, you know, how they separated men from women and children, how they committed persecution of how they expelled almost 800,000 Albanians in just a few months, you know, how they committed massacres in Suvareka, mm-hmm. in Podujevo, in, in, in Prizren, in Pečin, in uh, in Jakovica, you know, the whole municipality, in Dečane, how they committed one of the, the, the most vicious atrocities and crimes Crimes in the end of April in Mea and Korenica in Jakovica, And, mm-hmm. and uh, again, another judgment, you know, Georgievich judgment is also very important, especially when it comes to attempts to destroy the bodies of, of Kosovo Albanians who were killed and, and concealed the crimes of, of Serbian regime. So I think, you know, when when looking at those judgments, when looking at what what you can find there, what you can read there, I think that should serve as the basis to deal with the past, to really honestly look at, you know, the leadership of your country, which which led you at some point in, in time. And you can say, you know, these were the criminals. Mm. And this is what separates us from them. If we deal this, if we accept this, if we acknowledge this, that is the difference between the normal society and the society that was uh, at the time here. So, you know, I think it is so important to have that kind of opportunity to to address the accountability to the top leaders because uh, only by doing that, you say that, you know, what was done on the highest level in the army or in the armed forces mm-hmm. or in the politics of, of one society at some point or one state at some point had the criminal intent. And it somehow sends you the message that war crimes were not just incidents, that they were part of the policy to, for example, like in the case of Srebrenica, completely eradicate Bosnian Muslims from one, from one area.
0: And what about the role of civil society's organization in all this process of transitional justice? Are they powerful to bring some changes? What is their role? How can they help? You know, uh it's it's quite difficult
1: because I, I am part of the civil society for <laughs> so long and it's always very difficult how to evaluate your own work and yeah, how, how 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 not to be frustrated <laughs> because you haven't achieved the much or as much as you wanted. I think you know, having this kind of very long experience, a human rights activist and someone working in a civil, in a civil society and cooperating with my colleagues from Kosovo and Bosnia and Montenegro mm-hmm. and Croatia. What I see now is that civil society has been the main force to push for transitional justice mm-hmm. in our countries. And I think that is where their role should be um, respected and applauded. Many of my colleagues... Um, Many of the people that I know and that I worked with in the last 20 years have been so dedicated to this process and, you know, despite all of the frustration, despite all of the defeats, despite the lack of funding, despite the lack of support, despite the lack of interest from state institutions, you know, which are usually not very and have not been very open to these issues Mm -hmm. and these processes. I think we have done a tremendous job. However, our results have not been that big because we have had obstacles and challenges on every step of our way. And I think that we definitely need more support. But what we have here in the Balkans, I would say we have one of the most active civil society in the area of dealing with the past and transitional injustice. You know, it's not just a question of whether we have lobbied or pushed for civil society took upon itself to do the, the job of the state for example what humanitarian law center from kosovo and humanitarian law center from belgrade done in documenting all of the people who lost their lives in the war in kosovo is the biggest memorial to those victims, to those people Mm -hmm. by doing this job, doing this work for 20 years, invest in interviewing families, collecting documentation, documenting, uh, collecting artifacts about persons who lost their lives. That is, you know, states should have done that. Our state institutions should have done that. That is the job of the state to record the victims, to record the human losses. In, in our case, in the Balkans, civil society have done it in order to prevent the states to manipulate with numbers. Mm-hmm. The same thing happened in Bosnia. Civil society organization did a, a tremendous work in collecting data about people who lost their lives in Bosnia and Herzegovina and documented every single life that was lost during the war. Persons who were killed, persons who were who went to disappear, persons who were murdered as victims of human rights violations, every name on that list. And I think, you know, uh, that is, for example, what civil society here has done. Our civil society organizations have gone to victims. They have lobbied on their behalf in order to You know, they have lobbied and advocating for their rights to reparations. They went and interviewed them. They collected oral histories Mm -hmm. of of their memories. They have worked on creating memorials. They have worked and, for example, we in Belgrade are still working for the last five years in order to have a a, a memorial in Batajnica to commemorate the victims, Kosovo Albanian victims who were buried and unburied, they are exhumed there. And when we realize that state of Serbia is not willing to do it, then we have created a virtual museum for them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whatever we can do, we do. And I, I would say, unfortunately, we have had too many obstacles so that our results can be significant. Mm-hmm. But I think that without uh, an active, And strong civil society, the process of transitional justice in this region would be much worse than it is now.
0: And coming back to the title of, of our podcast, which is Forgetting and Forgiveness in the Balkans, how do you see the link between these two, forgetting and forgiveness, and can forgiveness lead to forgetting? Yeah, it is a very, very difficult question
1: because often when we talk about forgetting and forgiving in, in transitional justice context, it can be very tricky and it can mm-hmm. be understood in many, many other ways. I would um, say that, you know, you, can, you can't have like a collective effort for forgiveness. Mm-hmm. I think that is a very personal feeling and something that has to be left to each and every person to go through that process if he or she wants that. You know, I have met many victims or families of victims who lost their loved ones who said that they don't want to forgive. They don't want to forget. Mm-hmm. Of course, they can forget, but they don't want to forgive. But I have also met people who said, I forgave. And, you know, that is on their personal level. I think that forgetting is not the road to forgiveness. I think that acknowledgement is the road to forgiveness. Mm-hmm. I think when you see That someone who committed a crime against you was punished or prosecuted and punished, that his... uh sentence was appropriate and in accordance with the law that if if you see that the state has done as possible to repair the damage that was inflicted upon you then you can maybe start thinking about this Mm -hmm. but i don't think that we should ever forget i think we should we can transform the past
0: Mm -hmm.
1: i don't believe that we should forget it i think that by looking at it in an honest manner, without any kind of, you know, pink glasses, or how, how do you say that, you know, trying to sugar things up, or trying mm-hmm. to make past more beautiful than it really was, only by honestly looking at it, uh, and dealing with it, I think we can talk about transforming the past, transforming that uh, memory on the violent past into something more productive.
0: Well, I think my question, my following question is a bit, hard to answer because I don't think you can really evaluate this but with all your years of experience and what you told me about accountability and not forgetting how do you think people in the Balkans are ready to forgive their neighbors uh, let's say right now it's a bit tricky
1: (laughs) I think that people would be ready when they see the other side uh, ready to acknowledge when they're ready Mm. to acknowledge that what they did was wrong I think that that is something that would leave to someone thinking, maybe I should forgive. You know, I can live in peace now because the other side acknowledged, the other side apologized. They have done everything possible. They have put perpetrators, they have prosecuted them, they have established the truth. They are not denying the crimes. They have acknowledged it. So now I can be ready for that. But before that, I don't think we can talk about... You know, yeah. forgiveness in, in, in our communities and in our societies.
0: But it, it looks so hard because it seems that the process has to go. You know, every time I hear about peace building, I have the feeling that it's between two, two parties, but the, or two entities or two states, but the truth is. It goes first within one entity, and then it can go to the victim. It's very hard. It, it has to be like Serbia has to do its job, Kosovo has to do its job, and then maybe after both of them can agree, which is really hard. Yeah, it is.
1: It's sort of like a, like a like a link of you know we are all connected. You know, it depends on what what is one side doing and the other side is doing, and if one side is ignoring that then the process will be halted, the process will be postponed. I, I really do believe that but but it happened around the world. It happened, yes. you know, in other countries and they have done it. I mean Germany and France have mm. done a lot. And if there were two states that had lost lots of problems in the past. <laughs> <laughs> but it can be done. It can be done and I'm I always try to remain optimistic about this. Mm. Because I do strongly believe in reconciliation because, especially because I'm a historian and especially because Mm. I know that for longer periods of our history, we have lived together in Mm. peace. That is why I believe
0: in this kind of reconciliation. Um, I have another question, it's also related to what you say about France and Germany. I know that after the Second World War, you know, you had men thinking, okay, we had this terrible war, now we are going to create something together, and it's going to be, well, the beginning of the EU and everything, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, how about uh, economic ties? Like, Could it be a plus, you know, in the reconciliation process? Absolutely,
1: I think. I mean, one of the reasons why the process of transitional justice in our societies have not been very successful was exactly the fact that we have been struggling with other issues, you know, that come naturally in a post-conflict mm-hmm. period: economic crisis, unemployment, corruption mm-hmm. in all of our countries. You know, that is that is one of the biggest problems, and you know. But at the same time, when you have when you have a more stable economy, when you have mm-hmm. uh, economic relations, I think that the common interest would work. And I think that when it comes to that, you know, I, I know people who are cooperating, you know, I know private businesses who are cooperating mm-hmm. with, you know, their colleagues from Kosovo or, you know, people are working, people are living lives will inevitably, economic relations, That is that is the inevitable thing. I just believe that, we need also to deal with this ugly part of our past in order to completely repair the relationships, uh, relationship between our communities and our states.
0: Okay, that was uh, actually my last question. So thank you really a lot for all... Thank you for inviting me, really. (laughs) Yeah, it was a very interesting conversation and um, I'm really glad we could exchange on this topic so thank you very much mariana for all your answers and um, i wish you all the best (laughs) for the following um, thank you thank you so much i
1: also want to thank you for inviting me to participate in this and uh, i wish you very good luck in all of your endeavors and activities
0: thank you for listening this episode was created with the help of mevludes kuroshi and Jeremy Floro, graphic design, Isabella Markova, theme song, I'll go out to run now by The Gang. You can listen to the Reflection podcast on Spotify. Back to you next week. <coughs>